Welcome to the premiere episode of Aeronautic Pictures Camera Crew Filmmaking Podcast, where we explore the art, business, technology, and techniques of photography and filmmaking. My name is Craig, founder of Aeronautic Pictures, and it's great to have you with us on set. I'm a photographer, a filmmaker, and general aviation pilot whose love of flight, nature, and travel led me to focus on aerial and location work most of my career. I recently spoke with Jeff Apple, a producer and director of a vast number of commercials, many of which I worked on, television programs, and the executive producer or producer of feature films such as Where the Boys Are, Evolution, Zapped, The Recruit, and In the Line of Fire, which starred Clint Eastwood, Rene Russo, and John Malkovich. Stay tuned until the very end where I reveal the great guest of our next episode. For now, Hit the craft service and settle in. The show starts right after this. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Just to give our audience a sense of who you are and sort of break the ice, do you have a favorite genre of film? Well, I, I, in terms of making films, I'm best known for thrillers, spy, secret service kinds of things. And I'm developing several television series in that genre as well. I seem to gravitate towards that genre. And is Although, by the way, I do, just in terms of movies, I also have a family film that's a, a comedy. I have done comedies. I, I personally like all genres. It's, a, it's really a function of a good script, good story in any genre, ultimately. So you don't have um, Netflix sort of ratting you out uh, and always suggesting the same sort of things because you watch the same sort of genre. You... Basically, you've confused the AI to the point it just says. It's exactly right. It definitely, I, I see the hands in the air like, I don't understand what you like. It's all over the place. Absolutely. The same thing goes for music. If anybody's ever looked at my iTunes, they would go, you listen to everything from rap to classical. It's all over the place. <laughs> um do you just out of curiosity? I don't think I've ever asked you this. Are, are there any foreign filmmakers that you are particularly fond of uh, uh, from any part of the globe, Europe, Asia? Not well. I've, I've been the early part of my life, particularly at NYU Film School. We were studying European filmmakers, and back then Truffaut. I still love Truffaut. A lot of the French filmmakers. I happen to love the French culture. I happen to love French music. Ravel, WC, and so I seem to be gravitating to them from an artistic standpoint, and that continues through the day. Interesting. Um, we're recording this in the midst of the global corona crisis in 2020, for those of you watching in the future, but putting that aside for a moment, from your perspective as a producer of film and television, how were the production and distribution landscapes shifting before the influence of the pandemic? Well, the studios uh, are, uh, are known for sticking their heads in the sand. And when anything new is coming, they keep hoping it just will go away. And 
that's not the way things work. Uh, we can go back and look historically. A good example of that was when cable was coming around. They kept hoping that would go away and why do we need HBO? That's going to kill us. Until they got their first $5 million advance from HBO and they said, maybe this is not bad. Same thing happened with the video business, you know, with video cassettes. All of that they thought was going to be the end of the world until it became a very big part of their bottom line. And I think the same thing has happened with Netflix and streaming. They've been just watching this train pull out of the station. And there were two concurrent things happening. The studios were saying, let's make our big tent poles because they're not going to be able to do it. And we're just going to do those ad infinitum until we can come up with new franchises and do remakes, sequels, and prequels, which is basically the business that the studios have come into. And that's what they've had. Now, the flip side is the Netflix, the Amazons, now the Disney Pluses, what they're doing is that's where original material is going. They don't, the studios just don't do it. And they've created that dividing line, which does not put them in a good position now, and particularly given the economics. But that was a trend that was already there. That ship had sailed. And um, amazingly enough, I'm still gasping at the idea that Sony, of all companies, did not start a streaming service. Not like they don't understand technology. They've been doing it for 60, 70 years. I just don't understand that for the life of me. But it, it's an example how it took right up until five months ago for Disney to start their streaming service. And in the first five months, they sold 65 million subscriptions. Like everything else, they're taking over that, that business. But, you know, the ship had sailed before the coronavirus in terms of dividing lines. Yeah, I mean, how how much room is there for so many streaming services with serious feature film quality content? Um, you know, and, and is there a parallel in the exhibitor market with theaters before then? I, I know that we both are aware of brands that were associated with the best cinemas. And there would be competition to get into those cinemas for your blockbuster film releases or what you hoped would be a blockbuster film release. Um, that's sort of like shelf space in retail markets, right? Having access to those seats and those beautiful venues. Um, but there's, there's, there's a limit to that kind of real estate. And isn't there a limit to the amount of streaming real estate and number of accounts people will have and that sort of thing? I, I don't think so. I think um, there, just, if you just look at the internet per se, as a, as a template, there are no barriers to entry. And it's really a function of finding ways of promoting. It's, that's really what it's about, is advertising and promotion for anything, as you well know. Yeah. And in this area, I think anybody who can figure out who can get great content, that's first and foremost. It's all about good content. If you can get that, however you get that, but have found innovative ways of advertising and promoting it, you can get them. If you build it, they will come if you can tell them where to go and remind them why they need to come back. I don't think there are any barriers to entry. The barrier is being able to attract an audience. But beyond that, you don't have to build theaters. You don't need to have it in a good area. It does, you know, the location part of that is irrelevant now. 
it's all virtual. And I think uh, there, there's a tremendous opportunity for growth if you can figure out the advertising and promotion side. Yeah. Well, and Disney's coming to the table with a back catalog that is the envy of the world, right? That, that doesn't hurt you because that's the content, at least out the gate. Sure. I mean, when, when I've been on Disney Plus since the beginning, and when you get on their homepage and it says, gee, would you like to watch Disney or would you like to watch Mar Marvel? That's not interesting. What about Lucasfilm? Oh, you don't like that? How about Pixar? I mean, it is so deep. It is so wide. It's breathtaking what they have built there. However, I think even they realize with what's going on now, people are burning through catalogs in a way they never saw right. before. And therefore, they're going to have to start doing content too. It's going to be an interesting time for producers because they're, they're going to be blasting through a lot more content. It's going to be very different than the theatrical business where you have studios making 12, 14 features, giant features a year. You know, maybe there's 100 major movies a year. This is going to be a whole new world. Well, you, you actually just beautifully set up the next question I had for you, which is that while production on set has essentially ceased for now, paradoxically, the demand for content seems to be reaching an all-time high, at least online. And I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you were putting on the uh, your Yoda hat or some sort of sage, um, uh, you know, prognosticator or uh, clairvoyant, what would you suggest to producers are the opportunities to capture value from this increased demand? How, how would you go about doing that when you can't put people on a set for the time being? Well, you are going to be able to, they, they announced they're going to be opening sets here July 1st. That's, that's going to happen. And, and uh, you know, outside of doing animation, which is certainly a good thing if you're, if, if you're in that area, uh, that's a natural place to be. Animation does take a certain period of time and a certain cost. But I, I think that uh, production is going to start happening and they're going to be desperately needing it. Uh, the best kinds of projects are not going to be things that require a thousand extras and things like that. If you can't do it digitally, you don't have it budget-wise. Smaller pictures are going to make more sense, more intimate kind of pictures. But that's all script-based, like everything else. It, it's all about a good script. Do you really think that uh, those producible smaller pictures without all those uh, extras, which create all obviously all kinds of contagion issues, let alone cost, other associated cost issues, um, are going to compete successfully for the eyeballs of people that are also being fed from the back catalogs, these action adventure films and spectacles? Well, I think, you know, you, it's hard to directly compete with those because they provide a different kind of entertainment experience. There's no direct correlation. They're very different. However, I think the success of a lot of series on Netflix, Amazon, Apple, that are smaller in scope, but still very powerful dramatically, is a good example on it's all about the drama or the comedy. That, that will make these things work. You know, nobody outside of, unless you're, you know, a 12-year-old boy, you're not looking for, you know, tens of thousands of people in the background and explosions and things like that. Outside of that, it's really about story and characters. And I think that doesn't require, you know, 
$150 million special effects movie to do it. You've, uh, in fact, you and I have done this together to some extent, um, but you've produced, shot uh, work all over the world. There has been a um, mixed feelings in Southern California uh, about the amount of work that's been done up in Canada. Um, but the reality is people go to shoot where they can get their projects done. And that oftentimes involves the cooperation of governments, tax incentives, uh, things like that. Uh, are there places around the planet right now that you think would be uh, ideal to turn to if you were trying to develop a project as a, a, a emerging producer, somebody trying to get your career going and, and do something in long form narrative? How, how would you go about that? I mean, You've given a lot of thought to this based on our personal conversations in the past. Well, I will be doing a movie in Australia, hopefully starting very shortly. It's ready to go, just starring Liam Hemsworth. And we do have the rebate out of Australia, which is 40%. And it's very significant. And they have great crews. That's a great place to go. It's also, they had a very low impact on the coronavirus there. I think it was in the order of like 30 people died from it there. It's pretty significant in terms of what they did in terms of the preventive side of it. So they're going to be in business pretty early on. Uh, it's There are a lot of places to go to on the internet to find out who's doing, who's, who's providing the biggest tax and rebate incentives in Europe, certainly Australia. Um, there, and I think it's been a great business for a lot of economies around the world. And to such a degree that they realize these rebates and tax incentives more than pay for themselves in terms of bringing uh, production to their shores. So my recommendation is is constantly searching the internet for those places that are, by the way, or they don't keep it a secret what they're doing. And when there are new things going on and new incentives, I guarantee Italy will be looking for people to come there. Uh, and and certainly once they get over this, it's a great place to film. Good example of that is the Medici series, which I believe is on Netflix. Maybe long, but the Medici series, uh, three or four years, shot in in uh, Florence, is literally a painting, a live action painting from the 1600s or 1500s. It is the most breathtaking thing and. There, you would be taking advantage of, you know, real life sets and, and backdrops that you cannot build. It's not possible. I watched two nights ago a movie about um, the French Revolution. It was not. It was not Les Mis, but it was really about 1789 in Versailles. And it was actually shot at Versailles because I'm sitting there looking at it going, you can't build what I just saw. And it was shot there. And so um, those kinds of projects, which are not exorbitantly expensive today, and by the way, could not have ever been filmed before on film because there's no way you could ever light those interiors, um, is because of technology, because of the sensitivity of, of these cameras and the, you know, the range, dynamic range, you can actually film in places that, you know, with candlelight and you see it in these series and they're breathtaking. They're not really expensive. 
And those are the kinds of projects I would look to do because of what you're getting, the bang for your buck, so to speak. I'm, I'm laughing for two reasons. One, my chair just let go its lock and I almost fell over on, on my... <laughs> Like, like I'm somebody, sorry I didn't see that. Yeah, well, you will if you watch this back, <laughs> um, which, uh, which may be reminiscent of somebody's ride on a crane not long ago. Well, a long time ago, actually. Um, but the other reason I was smiling is that, as often is the case, um, you're, uh, you're thinking along the lines of, uh, of, of what I had in mind for what was next, because um, over the years, you have been an early adopter of emerging technologies. Uh, for example, I remember when we used the montage nonlinear video editor back in the age of dinosaurs, touching on another term you were using earlier. Well, it's also the term on that was bleeding edge. It, it, it was indeed sitting in that room, which by the way, folks, when we talk about uh, nonlinear editors here, this is before computer nonlinear editors. This was a machine that used, what was it, Jeff? 70, 100 VHS? As many as you could plug it in. Yeah, know? VHS decks that had duplicates of all of your camera uh material and it was all the identical camera material and these decks would randomly access to try and race to be ready to demonstrate or to to to, to depict or play back your footage in real time non-linear it was it was crazy um so they, are there forgot, they forgot to, to to put in the software that would allow you to lay down a music track because we were doing a music video and then edit to that. They didn't, they hadn't figured that one Oops. out yet. Oops. Um, well, are there technologies like these super sensitive cameras you were describing that are on your radar screen that you think will profoundly change filmmaking? Uh, just from our personal conversations, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, presuppose anything you're about to say. I know you're always talking about working with these genius, uh, artists, scientists playing with great stuff. Um, and if, and if you had things that you're aware of that people should be looking out for or consider using, uh, not necessarily brands, but just approaches to being a modern filmmaker. Well, Storyteller. I mean, just on the, on the series I was just referring to, um, the use of drone footage is breathtaking. Now, I'm, pers I'm working on a project, which I'm hoping to get done this year, which is going to be a six, seven hour series based on uh, the true life story of Marshall Major Taylor, who was the first black athlete in the U.S. Uh, back in the 1890s. He was a bicyclist. And I'm personally, as we've been working and developing the screenplay, I've been working with the writer, I know exactly where our drone footage is going to be, and I know how we're going to use it. We are going to end up um, filming our, our actor on a bicycle at high speed with a drone and getting intimate views of that in a way you could never, ever do anything. And it's a, such a perfect application. In terms of these other series, establishing shots in, in uh, Florence, other places, are some of the most breathtaking establishing shots. They e they're even doing it in such a way where it kind of looks like a giant crane that's moving down and you know they're designing these things and they're so good and it allows you to create a scale and a scope that you couldn't have gotten any other way you know even with helicopters you could never do this nor with a crane yeah well of course being an aerial guy uh air, you know helicopters 
can perform and do things that uh, drones certainly cannot do and and vice versa. They're right. two different tools for two different right. tasks. There, there's of course going to be a place where they seem to overlap a little bit, um, but they're absolutely different. You can't, to at least right now, you cannot chase a car at the same speed um, with a drone for a sustained period of time that you can with a helicopter. Um, and you cannot fly a helicopter in a window. At least last time I looked. So you can, but it's not going to be pretty. Accurate. You you, can, you only get one take. True. Just and one I take. Think, but I think that's the thing. These drones. What I have seen is it, it. It's kind of the best you could ever get from a helicopter, and also the best you could ever get from a crane. And mixing those two things together, and that's really where that overlap is. You're absolutely right. Certain speeds you couldn't get, but um, that you, as you know, that's going to change. All yeah. that's going to change. Oh, the drones are getting faster yeah. and they're carrying heavier payloads yeah. and th they're doing things very much like you were talking about a moment ago, effectively like what we would call motion control, where you have programmed the camera to move over a very specific series of points in time, like the way a robot arm would move on an assembly line. And it will do it the same way every single time. So if you need to make multiple passes for plate shots and that sort of stuff, it's all there, or if you just need to make sure that your pyrotechnics go off in the right place, or give your uh, your actors a chance to predictably hit their marks. If they screw up, the, the drone's gonna be in the same spot, take three, take five, et cetera. So it's absolutely coming on. And, and of course, just for the record, I am getting my commercial drone pilot's license, so. I'll keep that in mind. Oh my God, ladies and gentlemen, that is what in Hollywood is known as, don't call me, I will call you. <laughs> <laughs> Ow. Uh, I'm going to write down duly noted. Uh-huh. Um, and then, and then, like, you know, round file it. Um, so, uh, so, obviously, drone, drone fan. Um, what about, um, what about advice to young people who are pursuing dreams of producing, directing, shooting, or writing feature films today? And I know that those are very different paths broadly speaking so if you want to you know kick one of them out kick them all out except for one and just focus on that that may make more sense but you you've taught young people um you you taught people like me I, we joke uh, over the years that i'm a graduate of the apple school of film not apple computer but jeffrey apple because like many other folks you've been so generous with your knowledge and your experience and your torture uh, and, and you have, and you have, I, I, I call that enhanced interrogation, but go ahead. Well, I mean, for the record, I started working with you when I was 17 years old. That was the very first time I showed up on set and, uh, I worked my way up, um, with various titles and, uh, and, and trauma, uh, but learned, I, I, 90% of what I know about the practical, um, skills of filmmaking from you. Um, so if, if there was somebody else who was less annoying than me, who came up to you and said, well, I'm, you know, 17 and I'm considering going to college or not. And I really would like to produce features. I want to be the next Jeff Apple or, um, David Lean. Um, what would you, what would you tell them other than, oh, no, 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 no. Like my mom once said to me, why don't you, don't you want a real job? Well, honestly, that is the, you know, I do have friends of mine who, send their kids to me and other relatives and so forth and they want to know what I what I what they should do. And I do tell them very honestly, 
get out now, get a real job. I, I say that with total honesty. And, you know, people told me that, and I wasn't smart enough to listen. And I think that's really the people who will hear that and take it on board and then throw it out and say, too bad, I'm going to do it anyway. Those are the people who should be doing it because they're going to do it no matter what. And they're not doing it in any other way other than the fact that this is what I have to do and I'm going to do whatever it is. So those are, that is what I tell people right off the bat. Get, you know, become an attorney, get a real job, have a real skill. Um, aside from that, the people who are going to do it anyway, um, there is no one way to get in this business. We know that. You could, there's a, a wide spectrum of anywhere from the mailroom at William Morris to, um, you know, you had a relative who, who was an actor, whatever it was. There's a giant spectrum. I think people, young people today, have to find what aspect of filmmaking is really their forte. Um, direct, directing, actually, most of these things can be done in a lot of different ways today that you couldn't do before because you have iPhones, you have the ability to create movies and iPhones. I happen to know companies who have software that are actually doing that and they're doing a pretty good job at it. And that's only going to get better and cheaper. So the good news is budding filmmakers have a lot of ways of showing their skills in a very inexpensive way. Um, something we didn't have, you know, when I was starting out just post dinosaur. Uh, uh, Kinescope. Yeah, if we were a lot more daguerreotypes. <laughs> But the, the, today there are a lot of ways of doing that and, and, and showing people what your skills are very inexpensively. So it's probably the easiest time, not that it's easy to do, but it's the easiest time to create a demo reel of writing, directing, shooting, editing, all that. Any, but you can do all those things. And uh, it's something... I did. I was lucky because I, you knew my father, and my father was a professional photographer. <clears throat> I had that advantage because while, even while I was in film school, my father told me one day that you know one of his clients, a big land developing company in Florida, wanted to do a promotional film, and would I be interested in talking to them about doing it? I said, yeah, I'm sure I'd be, I'd be up for doing that. And my father, who one of the great lessons that he taught me was, if you want to do something, just do it. And I talked to his client. They gave me an idea what they wanted to do and filmed down in Boca Raton. And my father said, why don't, you know, we'll rent a camera, go, go out there and shoot some stuff and edit. I said, okay. I went up and shot probably about 400 feet of, of footage. Uh, I hired a couple of models to be in the in some of the shots. And um, it was me and probably one or two other people. And I was going to NYU at the time. I lived in Miami. And I flew back to New York and had the stuff processed, edited it into, you know, like an eight or ten minute thing, all silent, no music or anything on it. And I came back and showed it to the client, and he thought it was incredible. Let's show it to the head of the company, who, by the way, was head of the American Bankers Association, a major CEO, 
and here I'm 20 years old. I don't care who anybody is. I was willing to talk to anybody. Right. And the bottom line was I did it. They liked what it was. They, I could charge a thousand dollars a minute, 20 minute film, $20,000, my first project. But back then I, I had all the advantages of being able to do that. You don't need all that today. You could do it yourself, you know, for very little and, and be able to show demos and be able to sell things. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a good time technologically for anybody getting into it. Yeah, if folks, uh, you know, are so blessed today, as you pointed out, to be able to have, for, for getting third-party software, any new iPhone uh, comes with a, a version of iMovie on it, which would allow you to do some editing, at least a, editing as sophisticated as cuts only with an old film system would have been a zillion years ago. And of course, you've got a camera that shoots in high definition, if not ultra HD, which didn't exist when you were doing commercials with me, when I was working on commercials with you. Uh, and as we've talked about, an Ikigami state-of-the-art camera in those days, that standard definition was a eighty dollars to $100,000 camera. There's almost no excuse for not getting out and trying and doing it and, and even failing, um, but at least trying and beginning to teach yourself through the process of practicing the art. Indeed. All those tools are there. They cost literally nothing. You could do, put it on your phone. Everybody has that technology. And uh, it, there is no excuse not to do it. And if somebody says to you, I'd like to see a, a reel, I'd like to see something, you should have it. There's no excuse not to have one. Absolutely. Do you think film school is required? I don't think anything is required. I, ultimately, it's, it's your own talents are there. Uh, Certainly learning certain basic skills are good. I went to film school. I didn't go to graduate school, but I, I went to film school. And uh, most of the things outside of film school were self-taught on the set. That's where you learn. You get on the set. You learn. You make mistakes. You see what works, what doesn't work. Um, I, that's one thing I did learn in film school was the complexity of getting things made and bringing people together. That's something you can only learn really on the set, uh, you know, literally doing it and understanding the dynamics of a set, uh, the tone of a set, realizing how you get performances in the midst of noisy places, how to concentrate, um, shoot in real locations, and which is pretty much what I've done my whole career. Um, and which is a good skill set because that's where everything is shot pretty much today now. The studios are not doing that, even though there may be a return to some studio situations because of controlling things in terms of the virus and that kind of thing. But I, I think uh, it's a great time to start out as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. It's um... It, it, there's more pressure on cost and pricing, which is frustrating because it's harder to earn a living under those circumstances. But there's also vastly more demand for video, quality video content, whether it's uh, in social media marketing, advertising on TV, or television programs themselves, or feature film length content. So there's certainly opportunities there. Um, 
the the trick is figuring out you know the uh, the code to get to turn that into a, a viable living without killing yourself. Indeed, indeed, and you know even if you can and you can develop these reels and, and demos, um, it's still you could have some really good things, and you still have to get to the right people in front of the right people at the right place at the right time. There's so many aspects of this, as you probably know, I, my analogy for getting uh, a movie made from a concept into actual production, getting it financed and then getting it distributed and getting it promoted properly, you have the same odds of, as one would have running from one end of a football field to the other while 50 people shoot at you with machine guns from the sidelines. You have the same odds. And I say that because you could get down to the two-yard line and there could be plane crashes. There could be horrible weather, all kinds of things. There's so many places to be mowed down along the way. It's yeah. amazing they happen. Now, I have done it, and I know it can be done, but I also know how you could be picked off so many different places. Here's yeah. another example. I have a project, a TV project I've been developing with Wolfgang Peterson. I won't go into heard, much. Heard of him. Yes. And it's a terrific project. It's it's in the uh, spy CIA genre, not surprisingly enough. Oh, whoa, shocking. It is. And I was speaking to the writer yesterday, and we just heard about another project that was similar in certain kinds of areas. That can happen. You could be working on it for a long time. I had a project with Bob Zemeckis. You've heard of Bob Zemeckis. 20 years ago, it was a terrific CIA uh, movie um, that was written and just before we were about to go out to the studios with him attached to direct, we, somebody had sent us a rough cut of a movie called The Three Kings, which is a wonderful movie, takes place in the Iraq war. We looked at that and said, we're dead in the water. That's the movie we wanted to make. We were so close to doing it. So that's an example of getting down to the two-yard line and all of a sudden getting picked off. It can happen. Yeah, I had that happen with a TV show at uh, A&E before there was a history channel. Um, so I can... Uh, Everybody has those horror stories. And uh, on the flip side, you know, one of, the, one of my favorite projects right now is something I did start 20 years ago and with the writer and we is this my career you're talking about yeah it is exactly. your project you are my project <laughs> it's more ways than one <laughs> yeah. That's true. But my point is that you know the things can come back alive and you can all of a sudden they're really relevant now more than it was 20 years ago um, I think it's a grand slam now. It's better to do it now. Plus, it's cheaper to do it now than it would have been 20 years ago. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you, you sort of hinted uh, about some of these things that are in the works. And if you can speak about any of them publicly that you'd like to have folks in the audience keep an eye out for on, on the horizon, um, I'd, I'd love to have you share them, if you will. Uh, I, I was mentioning this project with Liam Hemsworth. This is a uh, comedy that he's going to star in. It is about an Australian, and it's about a rough Aussie uh, kind of crocodile Dundee who uh, 
is hired by some nasty characters to go and and capture in this case koalas in, in the blue mountains and to so that they can sell them to zoos around the world mm. and he does that one night and captures a koala and on his way out of the blue mountains he's surrounded by an aboriginal tribe who warn him that there's a terrible curse for stealing animals particularly koalas to which he laughs it off and starts walking out of the woods when there's a flash of light and all of a sudden kind of an explosion he wakes up the next morning and he's exchanged bodies with this cute little koala he's now inside that body about to be shipped to a zoo in chicago and it's a very cute heartwarming kind of story and has a lot of uh, environmental aspects of it too and and real heart and something i've been working on for many years too many years to even describe and uh we're very close to getting that done now and i think that's going to be a very big movie and i think it's going to be the beginning of a franchise it's right. been for your audience one should know that it's been a rough road even though i still believe to this day that it will be a giant hit and people always ask the question why did it take so long yeah, yeah. well I was there at, in the office the entire time you were developing in the line of fire. I saw the different cast members attached. I right. saw the different directors attached and I saw the different writers attached. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, there were, that was a nine year venture to get that done with two different drafts of scripts, completely different. I threw out the first script, started all over the place. We had Dustin Hoffman attached and Michael Apted to direct. That's what I was thinking about. And ended up with uh, Clint Eastwood and Wolfgang Peterson directing. I mean, it was worth waiting for. It was, it, was a, it was a home run. There's no two ways about it. This project has taken longer than that. But I think it, 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 I believe in it 100%. One of the things that your audience should realize that um, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your project because nobody else will. And you genuinely have to, because it's going to take, the road is, if you ever knew when you started a project how long it was going to be, you'd never do it. Right. You always think, well, this one's going to be different. This will be easier. Yes, I have gotten things off the ground quickly, things I was kind of surprised by, but there's surprises. Yeah. It normally takes a lot longer than you think, and anybody who is negotiating options, real people, real attorneys, realize how long it's it takes to get things done and it doesn't happen when you want it to that you can be sure of yeah so i mean it's it's that's the reality of it and sadly that's probably one of the reasons why things cost more than they should because there are inefficiencies in the development process which maybe we can talk about in a future show if you're willing to come back about the steps that it takes to get a movie from hey i have this idea to how do i like write this and maybe get it made and get it sold and financed that that might be a a, a fun topic for us that, that's, that's a whole that's a whole show in itself no question yeah. about it. the development of things which is 90 percent of the work the production part as trying as it is is really the easy part of the whole thing it's the most fun Despite the fact that you called it going to war, I believe, at one point. It is, but it's a nice war. It's generally a friendly war, and you'll be in pretty good good hands as long as you go in with the right army. That's the trick. 
Uh, very much so, which is, again, another subject uh, to talk about how a director is not a dictator, but they're a collaborator who has to surround themselves with people who hopefully are smarter and better than they are at their various disciplines. Um, you know, it's not an exercise. I think in, a, in the best case, it's not an exercise in ego. It's an exercise in leadership. Absolutely. And, you know, perfect example is Wolfgang Peterson, who is a brilliant leader. Another example is Clint Eastwood. You know, as a director, I work with him as an actor, but as a director, I know a lot of people who work with him. And we we basically had his crew on In the Line of Fire. And I met a lot of his crew, He's who with whom he's worked for 20, 30 years. He is, he is very definitive. He loves his crew. His crew loves him. They will do anything for him. Move that tree. They'll move that tree. But the, the real point is, is that you have a crew who works with you, loves being there, and is being respected on both sides. And that's where that kind of sensibility ends up on the screen. It yeah. ends up on the screen in terms of production quality, because everybody's working together as one, not working against each other. They want to be there every day. You know, the best kind of experiences is when at the end of the shoot people are sad that they're leaving as opposed to thank god it's over right and that's that's what clint eastwood does that's what wolfgang peterson does and it ends up on the screen and those those shoots probably ultimately cost less to produce than a shoot where there's drama and conflict off the screen totally now that's a, a big deal because people are working together they're not fighting um, I, I personally don't want to work with directors and I haven't who are just not team players who are adversarial, who want to cause problems, who have no idea what they're doing, just want to take a thousand takes and hopefully something will be good. Crews don't like being around directors like that at all. They feel like they're wasting their time. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he wants. They love directors who know what they want, know how to get it and also how to get the most out of them and to use their skills. And like you said, get some great crew, get somebody who's going to come up with an idea. You know, not that I put myself in that league, but I also believe that if the grip comes up with a good idea, let's use it. I'm not, it's not my ego. It's going to end up on the screen and make me look good. Make us all look good. That was a great idea. Let's do it. Yeah, and that's, uh, a, that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of sensibility you want to set. No, you you are without a doubt, and I don't. You, we've been we're both too old at this point, and we've worked together for far too long. I don't need to blow hot air up your your hiney. You absolutely know how to uh, produce and direct in a smart fashion and as a leader. Uh, and we worked with the same people show after show after show. I can think of Ike McGall as one guy who's a, a good example, and uh, and it was always a, a pleasure. Um, it was very collaborative. There certainly were times where there were there was stress and other things and factors, but you don't get people to come back just because they're looking for work, especially in those days. There was enough work around that people could have gone elsewhere. But we did feel like we had kind of a family uh, and it was a, a solid crew that could that understood how to communicate with each other and people shorthand and, and things worked very well. Um, so no, I, listen, that's, I, I that's tried to emulate that. 
Well, thanks. I listen. I always felt like that's the way to get the most out of people. You have to be, if you're producing or and or directing, you have to be the ultimate diplomat. You have to know how to get your team behind you. You're going to go run that hill. I need everybody focused to do this one job, and you do that by by being kind to to crew and being have an empathy for what they're going through, and they'll. Though a good crew like that is like going into combat. Fortunately, nobody gets killed. Nobody gets killed. Oh, one, what, just one other point on the subject, and I really would like to come back to it for its own show. One of the things that um, you did, and not just with me, but I'm here all joking earlier in the show aside, I'm here as a living example of somebody that when I demonstrated to you that I could be relied upon, you gave me more authority and more liberty and more freedom and less oversight because you empowered me to to grow into roles that other people might have been like, well, he's too young or he doesn't have enough experience. Uh, and again, you did this with other people too, especially as I moved on or up the chain of command. And I think that's a great way to mentor young talent, especially if you're going to build an organization of people that are going to continue to work together on a serial basis again and again and again. You end up with people that, that speak your language and that, you know, know that you, you trust them and vice versa. Exactly. You know, and, and, and I probably did that because I was lucky enough people did that with me. And just because when I went in and did certain kind of pitches or when I was on the set, I rose up the ranks because people recognized I could do it. And I ended up on the first movie I ever worked on, an independent movie. I started as assistant cameraman. I ended up as the DP at the end of that. The DP quit. I had already been operating and doing other things. I ended up doing that. And uh, I was lucky enough for people to do treat me that way. And I, that's the way I like to treat other people. If they're good, let them rise. Let them, uh, you know, be as good as they can be. Well, with that, uh, I promised you a relatively short uh, conversation and interview. Let me thank you again for joining me on this premiere edition of this podcast, especially talk about get, trusting somebody and giving them an opportunity. And I hope and thank you. And I, and I hope that you will be willing to come back and chat with us again. I will indeed. And thanks for the opportunity, Craig. And best of luck on this series. It sounds really terrific. And I hope I hope people will get a lot out of it. Thank you so, so very much. Well, that's it. Shot list complete. Thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe. Click the notification bell, leave a comment, give it a thumbs up or down, and rate the show on iTunes. All of that really helps us. By subscribing and clicking the bell, you'll be sure to know when we do a live stream like a Q&A or post the next episode, which is an exclusive interview with the star of Chuck Tangled and Shazam, Zachary Levi. If you're watching this sometime in the future, it may already be published. Look for a link on the end card that follows or in the description below. Want to ask a question or leave a comment I can answer or share in a future episode? Visit anchor.fm slash camera crew and click the send voice message button. Who knows, maybe your comment or question will make it into a future show. You can show your support for our efforts by joining our crew or get support from your own fans with your own account at fanbeach.com slash camera crew or aeronauticpictures.com slash camera crew. Link in the description below. My thanks again to Jeff Apple for being such a great guest. 
We will see you on set next time. For now, that's a wrap.